Welcome to the Doc G Show, a radio show cluster. <laughs> Without further ado, critics have said he has the face for radio and a voice for silent films. Your host, Ben Doc G Gordon. And we are on the air. Welcome. To the Doc G Show, I'm your host, Doc G, with me as always, the one, the only, Mikey Maximus Leverticus. Say what? Sure, Doc G, what is up, sir? Oh, man. Mike, another, another week. You are, you putting it in. You're putting it in in the other jobs, not the Doc G Show. Mm -hmm. I I feel for you. You're just telling me. Fatigued. Fatigued. A lot of hours, listeners. He is putting in hours. In his yeah, job. yeah. Can I tell them? I can say no. I, I probably shouldn't. I don't know. Is that allowed? He's do, he's working on a very popular film. Okay, that's yeah. what he's doing. Wow. Can't yeah. say what he's doing, what it is, where it's at, but it's a popular film, listeners. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty a cool. Very cool thing. Yeah, uh, Mike, and I'm going to tell you about another cool thing. I'm very excited about. Tell me about uh, it. We had. Hundreds of new listeners on YouTube. What? This past week's show. Yes. Thank yes. you, listeners. We appreciate yeah. that. And Mike, the, the thing that got me excited, and I told you before we came on air, this is specifically just the podcast. Yeah. Like, this isn't a video. This is them just saying, let's listen to these turkeys talk it out. Yep. That's it. Yeah. I mean, and that's a solid new little audience right there. A couple hundred listens. That's a fact. Yeah. That's a solid little for audience sure. right there. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's a, like, yeah, it's a still image. They're not even watching the video of us no. or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying, cool. I was thinking, I was like, what can, what can I do? What can me and Mike do to entertain these new folks? Mm-hmm. You know? And I started thinking about it and they got me to go use the old YouTube analytics, Mike. Hmm. Yeah. Have you ever checked that out? Yeah, you know, I check it out. But, you know, it can be kind of, it can be uh, good and, and bad, uh, <laughs> the it's, analytics. It's, it's ridiculous, though, Mike. Yeah. I got to say, their analytics, way more than any other streaming service. Yeah. You can just pretty. go bananas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, I, I can look, I can, if I want to, I can look at what other channels, viewers of our channel watch yeah and i can look at that city to city mm-hmm. and be like well what, what do the uh minnesotans watch after they watch me what's going on there mm. right yeah like, i can i can look at i can look at age demographics mike by the way shout out to the 13 and 17 year olds shout who out. listen to this show cool they, they make up 0.4 percent of our views on youtube Hey, cool kids. Exactly. <laughs> I can I can only imagine you are not popular at all in school. I can, hey, Colin, <laughs> what are you doing after school? I don't know. I may just go listen to the Doc G show. What? Hey, guys, Colin's going to go listen to the Doc G show. We should probably, I don't know, <laughs> beat the shit of him. What do you say? Like, what? No, but shout out to you guys. 0.4% of our crowd. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank but, you. But regardless, Mike, the, the analytics are amazing. Like you can sync up individual cities, individual age groups, 
and when exactly they stopped watching the video. Yeah, yeah. I can go on there and be like, all right, let's see the exact second of the show where female viewers 18 to 24 in Seattle, Washington said, this guy sucks. I'm not watching this anymore. <laughs> see, this yeah. is why it's bad. This is why it's not good. Spoiler alert, Mike. It's not too long in the show that yeah. that demographic says I've had enough. Nope. Uh, I've had enough. Most likely in this show we're on right now, they've already stopped listening. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, they have definitely stopped listening. So true. But Mike, I was I was cruising all this data and I started thinking about our last show because that was the show that was actually getting all these listens. And I was like, hmm, we had hundreds of new listens. What's the first thing they heard? And they heard us talking about President's Day, Mike. <laughs> Sweet. That's uh, what they heard. Hilarious. President's huh? Day talk, you know? And I was like, that's, that's pretty lame. Mm -hmm. Do we have any better stuff? And I was like, nah, probably not. No. It's probably the best we got. Yeah. But nonetheless, Mike, I got a little self-conscious. And I was like, we should have we brought the, the heat yeah <laughs> we should have been talking about bidets again you know i mean we all know it's a popular subject yeah exactly mike yeah. it's straight fire when you talk mm -hmm. about bidets mm -hmm. yeah you know people are so, passionate because of that mike i went down a little bit of a bidet rabbit hole again there we go that's how we just, start a show <laughs> just a little bit and mike I've, i i found a way to meld two things that we love on the show President's Day and bidets. <laughs> Which presidents used bidets? No. <laughs> Tom Brady and bidets? Wow. I bet he I bet he does. <laughs> I bet you anything he does, Mike. But I melded why would you review that and bidets, Mike. There we go. A review of a bidet. There we go. Mike, I came across the Tushy Classic 3.0. The Tushy Classic 3.0. It's just mm. a bidet seat. Hmm. And I got to be honest, Mike. People love this bidet seat. Yes! It was so hard for me to choose a, uh, a review, but I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give okay. you Alan M. right here. This is Alan M. This is a five-star, five-star review for the Tushy Classic 3.0. Here we go. <laughs> Quote, I installed my first Tushy Classic 3.0 exactly a year ago. There's a bit of a learning curve. How long do I let it spray? Huh? <laughs> it occasionally doesn't hit the bullseye. How do I adjust so quickly so it hits the bullseye again? <laughs> Mike, I'm guessing the bullseye is his butthole. I'm yeah. guessing. <laughs> yeah. But... I mean, do you really want it to go exactly in, though? I don't think you so. Know? But yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but he says, Mike, the learning curve is short, as this is not rocket science. After a short while using the bidet, I realized that not only do I use much less P a TP, in parentheses, Mike, now he uses an average of four squares. Jeez. <laughs> This man is a conservationist. Four squares? Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Not a lot of squares. I mean, depending no. on the roll, you know. It's very I mean, low. Yeah, unless, yeah. I mean, super absorbent, maybe. 
But then he says, he goes on to say, but the wiping operation is more about drying off now than cleaning up. Using a bidet is just more civilized and more sanitary. Here's a tip for the men. Mike, are you listening? Yeah, I'm listening, Doc G. I know this is a whole convincing. You're just trying to convince me. <laughs> you're just trying no, to get me next week on the show. I'm going to announce I have a bidet. <laughs> I'm I'm not trying to convince you, Mike. Alan, Alan M. is trying yeah. to convince you. Right, but he says, gotcha. here's a tip for men. Get your junk out of the spray zone mm. and you will have less to dry off. I'm guessing <laughs> you just hold them up like a purse bag. I don't know. Um. After about 10 months, my wife finally started using the tushy. So I bought a second one for the other bathroom. She was very resistant, but she finally realized that it is simply a better way to clean butts. That's a fact. Amen, Alan. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Not finished though, Mike. Nope. I tried recycled <laughs> dot, dot, TP. Dot. <laughs> exactly. I tried recycled TP to also cut down on the amount of virgin pulp. Look at Alan using lingo. <laughs> virgin pulp. That sounds pretty dirty too. Yeah, I don't like that. Virgin pulp. I tried <laughs> recycled TP to cut down on the amount of virgin pulp used for butt cleaning, but the paper tears too easy. Now we use bamboo TP. Bamboo TP, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The, cla the classic 3.0 is inexpensive but effective. It doesn't have any bells or whistles. It just does the job. Our bathrooms do not really allow us to hook up the either warm water or electricity. So I'm just thankful that the Tushy offers us this civilized, no frills option for daily butt cleaning. Yes. Yes, Alan. <laughs> yes. Mike, that's just that's just one review. One <laughs> review out of almost 18,000 reviews. Wow. With an average of 4.7 stars for the Tushy Classic 3.0. I'm writing it down. Tushy yeah. Classic. Yeah. I got to say, Mike, it was almost impossible to choose Alan's uh, review because there were thousands of Shakespearean reviewers out there. <laughs> I mean, they took their time in these things. John Multiple A syllables. John A included pictures of his cats. I have no clue why he included them. There's just pictures of his cats. Like, oh. hey, may I don't know. Maybe he was using it and he was like, this is my view right now. Here's mm. my cats while I'm, I don't know. You There's can train, no you can train the cats to use the toilet. I don't, I don't think know. they want to use a bidet. That would no, really freak really. those guys out. That <laughs> would, they would not be into that. But my point is, Mike, these new listeners, strap in. Because mm -hmm. this is the kind of hot fire content you get on this show. Yes. Yes. I'm almost yep. positive, Mike. There is no other radio show or podcast out there that reads real reviews of bidet seats. <laughs> That's right. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. Are you ready to fire the show up, Mike? Let's fire up this show, Doc G. Woo! All three engines up and burning. Two, one, zero, and liftoff. Mike, let's be honest. There's probably like 55 shows that actually do that. I mean, good mm. lord. 
all the podcasts that are out there. I'm going to look it up, listeners. I'll I'll, I'll <laughs> get back to you. We'll probably find one that's better than ours, but oh. I'm going to look up, see if we have any good day reviewing podcast out there. I bet you. How much would you want to bet, Mike? I'm going to bet you $50. There is another bidet reviewing podcast out there. Do you, do you want to take that bet? I mean, considering that there are podcasts, they get niche. I'm sure there are at least three bidet podcasts, and I know they're reviewing. Okay. And they're coming out every week. Yeah, they are. On Wednesday. Coming out hot. Coming out hot with it. <laughs> yeah. They're on time. We got, we got competition, Mike. Yeah. We have got competition. Yeah. I'm sorry, Doc G. I can't take you up on that bet. I, I understand it. It's smart an money. It's smart money. <laughs> but regardless, Mike, we have a fantastic show. We have the one, the only, Rodney Crowell on the show. Absolute songwriting legend. Written songs for just uh, think of somebody, and he's probably written a song for him. That's a fact. I mean, you know, the Bob Seegers. The, the Merle Haggards, the Waylon Jennings, the Johnny Cashes, the Roseanne Carter Cashes, the 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 Keith Urbans. It just it, the list goes on. It's just it's it, it's insane. But first, Mike, we need to start where we start. Birthday suit. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Mike, since we're uh, I I did not write down your your record, but we all know I'll go back. I'll find it. Don't worry. Don't worry, listeners. We won't have an update the, for the new listeners out there. Don't worry. Yeah. It'll come back. It's we'll decent. It. It's decent. It's, right now, listeners, I can tell you he's right around 60, a little over 65 percent for this this year yeah. for his season, for his career. He's a, he's a right below 60 percent. So he's hitting I'm below sixty percent for career? for for career wise. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you finished you finished at like fifty five if you remember fifty five percent at the end okay. of the year. Yeah. So I mean, you're bringing the average up this this year. So that's good. All right. I think man. you I think you got this first one one hundred percent. Born on February twenty eighth, nineteen ninety nine, in Slovenia. He is number 77 on the Dallas Mavericks and is averaging 34 points a game this season. Hmm. Name that birthday suit where? Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is correct. Yes. Nicely done, Mike. I was confident. Yeah. I was confident. Thank born you. In, born in Slovenia. His uh, dad was a former professional basketball player. I didn't really realize that. I guess I should have since, you know. He's been playing since he was like negative four. Makes mm. sense. But uh, he touched his first basketball when he was seven months old, Mike. Seven months old. Mm. When he was eight, he was practicing with the 14-year-old uh, boys. So had a little, little extra competition. When he was 13, he was given a developmental contract by Real Madrid. Three years later, he turned professional. So when he was 16... He dominated playing in Europe, and by 2018, he was EuroLeague champion and MVP. He was drafted in 2018 by the Atlanta Hawks and then traded to the Dallas Mavericks. In five seasons since being drafted, he has been Rookie of the Year, five-time All-Star, and four-time All-NBA player. Jeez. I think that's pretty much everything you can do. That's, yeah. That's, that's, most, that's most it. I am going to say, though, he does look like he's like 35 years old. 
Like, I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. Like, even though he's obviously young, there's mm -hmm. something in his face whenever I watch a game that I'm like, that dude looks old as shit. I don't know what it is. Might just be because yeah. he doesn't like to run fast down the court. That might be it. I don't mm -hmm. know. He just does. He looks much older than his age, which his age is 25. He's turning the big quarter of a century, Mike. Nice. Quarter of a century. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday to the one and only Luca. Yes, indeed. Just balling. Balling outrageous. Yeah, Mike, he's, he's killing it. You ready to rip some headlines? Let's rip some headlines. It's now time for Rip from the Headlines. Mike, I don't want to bring down the show. I mean, we've been at a high point. Bidets, mm -hmm. Luca, mm -hmm. all kinds yep. of stuff. But I got, I got to tell you some bad news. Do you remember Flacco? Flacco. Yeah. Kind of. Vaguely. He was he was the Eurasian owl we talked about a while ago that escaped from the zoo. Oh he yeah, from the, okay. yeah, yep. He's he's been flying around New York for the past year on mm -hmm. his own, just being free as a bird, literally, because mm -hmm. he's yeah. a bird. Yeah, yeah. I got bad news. Oh no, he he died. Ah, oh. yeah, yeah. He died. He died. Uh, they're thanking Mike. The 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 the. Uh, most accepted theory is that he ran into a building, mm. which is a, a big problem, Mike. Yeah, Appa for sure. Apparently that happens over to uh, over a billion birds across America in a year. Just America. What? A billion? billion? A billion. Wow. Yeah. Apparently buildings are like the cigarettes of the bird community. Just oh, my gosh. That's wild wiping those dudes out just buildings oh man mm -hmm. mike i'm not into conspiracies but this situation seems a little fishy you know yeah there there were too many people looking to hold flacco down trying to cage that beautiful bird and when they couldn't they just decided to get rid of him i'm a little suspicious i'm a little suspicious i think that i think this might involve uh you know maybe the drug cartels i don't know mm. something something outside you know yeah but it could be his death may not be in vain, Mike. The New York uh, government has already started looking into passing the Feathered Lives Also Count Act. Mm. They What's really the tippy-toed on that line. They really well, what, danced, danced why, on that. Why did they tippy-toe on that line, Mike? <laughs> because the acronym is the Flacco Act. Oh, that's nice. Feathered Lives Also Count Act. Flacco. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Brad Hoyleman Siegel, uh, state senator, said when an animal like Flacco captures the public's imagination and ends with such a sad story, I believe we should try to make some good out of it. Mm -hmm. Amen, Brad. That's right. Amen. R.I.P. Flacco. Yeah. All right, Mike, we're going to move on to some better stuff here. Uh, uh, talk about some clickbait I came across, Mike. I came across some clickbait from the old lad Bible. Um, so I'm, I'm cruising along the headlines and I see one that says, quote, Kira Sedgwick wasn't surprised when she found out her husband, Kevin Bacon, was her cousin. Huh? Yeah, what? exactly. Listeners can't see, but Mike just had a look of pure confusion yeah, and surprise. <laughs> and that was my look, too. When I saw this, I was like, oh, that's a that's a bomb right there. 
So I click on the story, right? First of all, I found out that this quote unquote discovery happened 11 years ago, Mike. What? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, lad, by what are you doing, man? You can't just recycle headlines from 11 years ago. And it happened on the show Finding Your Roots. I think we've talked about Finding Your Roots before. They basically just do your genealogy for several years. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Ben Affleck went on that show, and he was so upset when they found out that he had uh, slave owners in his family that he uh, stopped them from uh, airing his episode because he didn't really? want that out there. And I was like, dude, what's the... Like, you didn't do anything. It's your yeah. It's your turd family members that did something. Like, come on. But I'm gonna get yeah, canceled it, for two family generations ago. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, he was he was concerned. But uh, yeah. anyways, when they did this with Kira, they found that Kevin was her ninth cousin once removed. Word. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> so. We've actually been over this topic a little bit on the show, Mike, but that means they shared a great, 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 great grandparent. Hmm. How many greats is that? I didn't eight. count. Eight. Eight greats. Eight great grandparents. And there's a generational difference between the two branches, between Kevin's side and her side. Mm -hmm. That's the once removed part. Mike, most people in our country have uh, over a million ninth cousins. Most people in America have over a million ninth cousins. The majority of ninth cousins don't actually share any DNA because of how many marriages have taken place. So what I'm saying is, Mike, I could care less that Kara and Kevin Bacon are ninth cousins. In fact... I'm saying, listeners, get out there and f all your ninth cousins. Do it. It's totally cool. Get into it. Well, you know, that's that's all you, Doc G. It's gonna take ten great great grandparents <laughs> for me. I am drawing the line at ten. No, yeah. thank you. Ten. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. I don't think I have time to uh, get to all of my ninth cousins. <laughs> uh, I'm not I'm not knocking them out in that that amount of time. Um, Mike, have you ever driven through the Hollywood Hills? I don't think so. I mean, hmm. I went up to I went up one of the mountains, you know, that goes up to the uh, observatory or you can see the observatory. It's a running yeah, yeah. canyon. Yeah, I went yeah, up yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, That's there's cool. some pretty bananas houses out there. Yeah. It's nice. Some nice ones, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I checked it out. The average price for a house in the Hollywood Hills uh, last year was roughly $2.15 Oh, so wow. You I you are going to say $30 million. No, no, no. No, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, but it's still, it's a little bit out of my price range. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But prices did not stop the dude in this next story, Mike. Apparently, a guy found a Hollywood Hills mansion that wasn't being lived in and he broke into it. He broke into it, changed all the locks, cut the alarm system, put up a new mailbox and started renting the house out. Hmm. Like he, he made up nice. his own lease. Yeah. He made yeah. up his own lease. Just did everything like uh, uh, 1800 style. 
Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. just go in and this is just my squatting. house now. This is it. This is it. <laughs> in particular, Mike, apparently he started renting it out to OnlyFans cr uh, content creators. Mm. Ew. Yeah. Now, none of this was discovered until realtor Emily Randall Smith was hired to sell the property by the actual owners of the house. You know, whoever these rich folks are that were like, mm -hmm. hey, do we still own that house? We do. Let's sell out of that. OK, sounds good. Mm -hmm. Like so they sell they sold the decided to sell the house and uh, she went to the property and realized, oh, hey, there's somebody sleeping inside this house right now. Right. And she said she knocked on the door. A woman answered and Emily said, quote, she was renting from the guy who is like the whole ringleader of the thing. She was hired to do OnlyFans content in there. So it was a little eerie and weird because when we went in there, you could tell that there was like some weird stuff going on in there. <laughs> What was going oh, on man. in there, Mike? I need her to elaborate. If yeah. I was the, if I was that reporter, I'd be like, was there dripping off the curtains? <laughs> what the what was going on in there? But I mean, obviously, Mike, this this was super illegal. But I feel like you gotta give it up a little bit for the ingenuity of this guy, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure if I was the rich guy that owned this house. I'd want this guy that broke into my uh, house to be sent to death row, but I can still respect the the hustle. That is, that is getting it, you know. Yeah, it is. I'd like to know how much he made for that. You know, how much did you get before before things all fell apart? Yeah, like what was his rent price for that place? Exactly. You know, whatever. Yeah, I wonder you if would, he was. Uh... You would think it'd be pretty high, or at least I would. Yeah, uh, or I mean, he would not know. know how to price it. Like, yeah, uh, two thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Mike. All bedrooms, okay. <laughs> Mike Miley Cyrus, Miley Cyrus. She's in a new movie that just came oh, out. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, she's in the movie Drive Away Dolls, which apparently it's a it's about a, a duo of lesbians that take a road trip. Now she's not one of the uh, lesbians, Mike. She plays Tiffany plaster caster which is a fictional character based on the real life cynthia plaster caster who had a career of casting penises of famous musicians in plaster sweet hmm. yeah That's... she made artwork of that yeah now uh the director ethan cohn said that he had miley in mind for this role basically the whole time huh which i'm like what really all right but he said he was worried that miley wouldn't want to play this part uh you know just because of the, a little bit of a stigma there mm -hmm. um and he said when we asked her to do the movie and sent her the script we didn't realize that she was a long time what's the word connoisseur uh student she is an enthusiast for penises. Mm, okay. She only told us that after the fact. She said, yeah, man, I have a whole penis room in my house. It was profiled in town and country. Wait, what? A, okay. A penis room. <laughs> a penis room, like? Mike. Exactly. Ugh. I can't tell if she's joking or not. I don't know. 
Did you look like, into this? You didn't look into the- I tried. Uh, I did uh, I did a little bit, but like I was at work. I didn't want to get, you know, oh, fired. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't, <laughs> don't want to be looking up penis rooms in houses, you know? Yeah, good idea. And like and like if she if she does, like you said, Mike, what's that consist of? I don't is know, it, but we're gonna find out. Is is it art? I'll get back to you. Yeah. I was just probably so, it's probably a little bit of everything, right? I guess I guess it gotta be. I mean, you think you there's know. a penis chair? It's giant. It's it's like a, you know like those banana boats that people ride on behind yeah. jet skis. It's <laughs> yeah. just like that, you know. <laughs> oh man, Mike. Uh, on to another singer, uh, Olivia Rodrigo. She's out there doing some things. Mm -hmm. uh, ladies lover. I don't know if you noticed that they're big into her. Uh, she just started the uh, Guts World Tour. Her big that's a fact big massive world tour that started this past friday at her show in palm springs a crowd member recorded a video of her you know talking to the crowd and at one point she says uh guys i went into a gas station the other day and bought a pack of cigarettes and a six pack of beer i promise i didn't consume it but i just bought it because i could right talking about her turning 21 mike right turning 21 and uh, mike i'm so old and don't ever purchase either of those products i completely forgot you had to be 21 to buy cigarettes like <laughs> i i was like did anybody tell her she could buy those when she was 18 she was missing out for three years then i was like oh it's 21 now that's oh, right wow. i just uh, learned now okay there you go okay there you go yeah Happ happened like five years ago mike happened like five wow. years ago yeah then, Mike, she reassured the audience that growing up wasn't scary. She said, quote, anyway, all this to say, I think growing up isn't so scary after all. And life just kind of gets better at the end, you know? Hmm. I feel like for, you know, so that, that it's not biased, Mike, I feel like she should have got like an 80-year-old up there to confirm this. <laughs> like, and they instantly would have shot, shot it down. They would have been like, anyway, I think life's not scary and life just gets better at the end. What do you think, Thelma? And just pans over to <laughs> Thelma and she's like, I would disagree with every point you have made. It is worse, everyone. Much, much worse. Everyone around me has died. I exactly. have everything. <laughs> I have every disease known to man. Oh, uh, you know, she seems like she's having a good time. Get it. Get it, Olivia. You get yeah. it. Uh, Mike, real quick here. Um, I've got big news for the folks that live in Sacramento, the old mm. sack town. Yeah. Their first alcohol-free bar has announced a permanent location, Mike. Wait, what? You heard me. An alcohol-free An alcohol-free bar. bar, yeah. And I'm like, okay, is it at a church or like where? <laughs> Listeners, you might, you might know it by its other name, a useless building. Yes. <laughs> yes. But apparently, Mike, it's called the Teetotalist. The Teetotalist, and it offers a unique and inclusive social experience for people who choose to abstain from alcohol or simply want to explore new and exciting non-alcoholic beverages. Mm, okay, like like a kombucha bar. I, I guess. Or maybe like, like a... I mean, 
Not to be a buzzkill, Mike, but I'm pretty sure people can do that with a Coke freestyle machine, too, mm-hmm. if they want. It's got like 3,000 different possibilities. You really? Can... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm also going to go out on a limb, Mike, and guess that the amount of hookups occurring at the alcohol free bar relative to a regular bar mm-hmm. is drastically lower. Yeah. Not a lot of dry fires in the sober area being like, hey, want to go back to my place? No, no, I don't. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Sound, enjoy your kombucha. I'll see you later. <laughs> uh, bartender, let me get another soda on the rocks, please. <laughs> it's, it's a hard, rough night. Oh, gosh. No, not hitting. All balls tonight. <laughs> Mike, we are going to take a break. We are going to hear from Rodney uh, Crowell. This is Bluebird Wine right here on the Doc G Show. And we are back here on the Doc G Show. Spinnaker Radio, WSKRLP 95.5 FM in Jacksonville, Florida. Mike, what do the listeners need to do? Doc G, if the listeners feel like the show is a positive way to learn about bidets, Mm. they should please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, a lot of places. It's a cost-effective way to support the show. And if the listeners are feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star review and a comment and tell a friend we amen. really appreciate it amen mike we got a couple of subscribers from the show too that's more analytics that i can i can look at oh. this past show cool, couple cool. of people were apparently like president's day f yeah i'm in yeah sign me up that's cool. what i want to be a part of and we though so if, if you guys are listening out there Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for buying in. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. And now that you know, we followed up President's Day with washing your butthole. Mm-hmm. You're even more in. Why not? Right? We need to thank those regulars, Mike. We, we need do. to thank them. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> Shout out. Shout out Jacksonville, Florida, Columbia, South Carolina, Radford, Virginia, Gainesville, Florida, Frankfurt, Germany, Anoka, Minnesota, Ashburn, Virginia, Pierre Brazil, San Diego, California, Dublin, Ireland, Borderman, Oregon, Genoa, Italy, Richard, Texas, Barcelona, Spain, Winfield, West Virginia, Biloxi, Mississippi, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Peoria, Illinois, Katy, Texas, Toms River, New Jersey, All Branch, Mississippi, Asheville, North Carolina, Los Angeles, California, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Ash. Oh, I'm running out of room. Athens, Georgia, Baton Rouge, <laughs> Louisiana, Chicago, Illinois, Boynton, Virginia, and Mike, the last one, Fort Lauderdale. Florida. Fort Lauderdale. Welcome. Welcome. We know, Mike, we're going to the we're going to the elbow room soon. Mm-hmm. It's happening. Yes. Live show. We're getting there. We're getting there. I can't wait. Mike's gonna be very excited. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna I have love his Fort co- Lauderdale. Oh my god, I'm gonna I'll I'll stay there for a week. We'll mm-hmm. do one show, I'll be there for a week. Easy. I'll I'll stay there because I've got my brother's house to stay in. He'll there kick you go. me out. There you he'll, go. He'll be like, dude, you've been here for a month and a half. And I'll be like, they love me here. Come on, man. Let us stay. Jeez. Uh, Mike, we do have some great four-star listens here. Uh, big listens from Cary, North Carolina this week. Big listens. Hmm. Several hundred listens just coming from Cary. Nice. Thank you, Cary. Thank you. Uh, shout out to uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I'm guessing some real uh, Godsmack lovers there from the old uh, hometown of Boston. So shout out to you guys. Uh, Manhattan, New York. 
Shout out to to the the Gotham City there, mm-hmm. uh, Sacramento, California, Sacktown. Yeah, getting getting all wasted on those non-alcoholic drinks. Listen <laughs> to us. Yeah, Odessa, Ukraine. Shout out to you guys. All right, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Teaneck, New Jersey. Didn't know that was a place, but Teaneck, no. Metman, Germany, Metman, Germany. Queen City, Charlotte, North Carolina. Shout out to you guys. San Jose, Costa Rica. Shout out to you guys. Walnut, California. Shout out to you guys. Uh, Vele, Denmark. Completely screwed that up. Uh, shout out to you, Denmark. St. Louis, Missouri, and Verona, Italy. There we go, Mike. Cool. There we go. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you for thank the you. lessons. Thank you. Thank and of you. course, Mike, the top five countries listening to us outside of the U.S. in this order from five to one, Spain, Singapore, Germany, Denmark, Ukraine. There we go. Cool. Shout out to you guys. Thank you. We love thank the you. international listeners. I can check out if you guys are watching YouTube. I can find out when you did, when you stop listening <laughs> and how old you are. I'm very excited about it. Mike, uh, we need to open up the miscellaneous file real quick. We do. Uh, uh, Mike, we opened the show with a humdinger uh, about bidets, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I have a little bit more uh, bathroom conversation I wanted cool. to cover on the show today. Love it. Uh, I was thinking about this because, of course, uh, I was in the bathroom yesterday and something very offensive happened to me uh, while I was in the bathroom. I went, I went to the urinal, and in the urinal, there was a paper towel oh. in the urinal. Gosh. Yeah. God, monsters do that kind of thing. Exactly, Mike. I don't know. Exactly. I lose a little Who? bit of faith in humanity when I see that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Who throws a paper towel when you know it's not going down the drain? Yeah. It's not possible. All you're doing is getting a paper towel soaked in that a janitor is going to have to fish out of there. <laughs> like, yeah. th- throwing it on the floor would be a less than throwing yeah. it in the urinal. Like, it's, I mean, it's either a person that's too stupid to realize that that paper towel isn't going to magically disintegrate, mm-hmm. or there's some sadistic turd that likes to think of janitors having to fish it out. I'm going to go with the latter. Yeah. Yeah, regardless, fix your life, people that do that. Yeah, seriously. Anybody, anybody that's listening right now, you fall into the same category as the people cutting through parking lots and the same category of people that are not going at green lights that cause everybody to miss that light. Uh, You are in the same category, which, by the way, Mike, after we talked about that, I hit one of those people. Not like I didn't hit their car, but I was behind one of those people and totally just got stopped at the light. And it was so annoying. They did not move. We all missed the light. And I literally wanted their car to spontaneously combust. I was Mm. like, I want to see this car burst into flames. Do you honk? I this is the sad part. (laughs) I don't honk so much. I was too stupid to realize where the the horn was on oh, my steering wheel so for like five seconds. I was like, where? I thought it was just <laughs> in the middle. This is a f- bag. What do I do? Where is it? And then I finally realized it was on the side. And I was like, oh, mm. man. So then it already lost the point, you know? Yeah. 
It would have been it would have been like a joke that came 15 minutes too late. The person was <laughs> yeah. like, what? We stopped talking about that 10 minutes ago. What's wrong with you? So anyways, Mike, I thought that needed to be addressed. You know, those people out there leaving paper towels in the urinal. Who are you? Yeah. Disgusting. And why are you a psycho? Stop it. Yeah. Stop it. Stop. It's disgusting. It anyways, Mike. We are going to take a break. We are going to be right back with the one, the only, Rodney Crowell, right here on the Doc G Show. The Doc G Show. Because sometimes you need something playing in the background. Every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on 99.5 FM, Spinnaker. This is 95.5 Spinnaker Radio. WSKRLPFM, UNF Jacksonville. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are very excited to have a songwriting legend in our midst today who released his album, The Chicago Sessions, back in May. He's currently touring. He will be performing on the Kayamo Cruise at the start of March, Mr. Rodney Crowell. Rodney, how are you, sir? I'm okay, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You know... I'm I'm so I'm always so excited to have guys like yourself on the show that have had such amazing careers, you know, and and I look back at the career and I go, man, and there's so many cool stories. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, how many times has he told that story? And I start to feel bad as far as asking you some questions. So I hope I hope oh, well, some of me. them are some of them are well rehearsed, but uh Generally speaking, I try to find a new way to tell the same old story if, if indeed it's called for. Um, but let's see what happens. Roll the I'll, dice. I'll I'll try I'll try to to spin them a new way than okay. than I've seen them in other interviews. But okay. before we dig into any of the past, let me uh, let me let me start with the present here. The the Kayamo cruise. Uh, I know you've done this cruise before. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of, of music cruises out there. How do you feel in general? Were you skeptic when you first uh, did the first cruise? Were you like, eh, this is going to be weird? Or were you excited about it? Uh, I was okay with it. Um, I didn't have any trepidation about getting on a boat. and I just went in with an open mind. Now, some of my musician friends that I want to go with me, mm -hmm. uh, won't get on a boat <laughs> and and listen we i was on the kayamo cruise just before covid broke wide open mm. and everybody on that boat was sick yeah. and and we just pulled into port the day before they shut started shutting people down and <laughs> so we got lucky there we flew home and infected the whole plane that we were on it was it was outrageous um so you know you're you're in close quarters with people on a boat. 
yeah. eating with them, you're singing in their face, and and the fans are quote unquote fans. They are very respectful. I enjoy those conversations actually. Once I get past the the one thing that wears me down is when they say, "Oh, I saw you so and so in 1984." I can't remember where that was. But, go through the roll decks of ten thousand shows. Yes, of course, that one. Yeah. Well, it's it's an opening line for someone who admires your oh, work, yeah. and mm -hmm. I understand that. But once that's gone, and you're just talking about, well, you got any kids or uh, something like that, it's 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 human interaction, and I don't think I. It's not in a writer's songwriter or any kind of writer's best interest to not engage with people on the street. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I try. <laughs> well, I've I've heard from other artists before as far as the the cruise sort of environment that yeah, most of the uh most of the fans uh that are there are very respectful anyways of like you know, pr privacy as far as and boundaries, they're not like just all the time in your face all the time trying to to get things you know, signed or talk about it in particular things. It's uh, they let mm -hmm. you have your, your, yeah. your time. It's a shared experience. Yeah. It's yeah. a shared, and especially Kayomo. It's, it's a songwriting, uh, reverent crowd. No. Yeah. And which makes it easier is, is sometimes they want a little explanation about why, why I said, <laughs> Beautiful despair is hearing Dylan when you're drunk at 3 a.m. Why, why, why would you say that in a song? And I say, I'm not saying that about me. It's somebody, somebody else I was with at 3 a.m. Yeah. was listening to Dylan and said, I'll stay drunk the rest of my life because I'll never write like that. It wasn't me. I, mean, they, it, I was just adopting something somebody else said and make it as the uh, first person narrative. Yeah, hard to explain. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. That's a, that's opening to the middle of the book and saying, "Tell me everything. Give me, give me the, give me the synopsis of this book." Uh, well, I mean, that's also where you met Jeff Tweedy, uh, who uh, that's true. Yeah, uh, produced your last album. Um, so, uh, and that is that is that where he asked you to to come to Chicago for the? No, uh, no, that's where he invited me to Chicago. Mm. And I'd heard his album. Actually, I heard uh, I Know How It Feels to Not Be Loved on NPR, driving mm. home late at night. Mm. You know, when you're in a car and it's just the headlights and the, the car's dark and music comes into the car and fills you up. That's probably when music sounds best to me. Yeah. When I'm alone with my thoughts. And here comes Jeff St. Beauty, this beautiful track of that song, just longing and. I love it. So I, I immediately bought the record. And so when I saw Jeff on the boat, I just went over and I said, hey, man, NPR sold me one of your records. And was, we had a brief conversation. He said, well, come to Chicago sometime and uh, try out my studio. I thought he was just being nice. I, said, I didn't presume anything. And I told my daughter, who's much smarter, smarter than I am, she said, Jeff Tweedy invited you to his studio and you haven't gone. And I said, well, he's just being nice. She said, 
call your manager to and have him call his manager. Next thing you know, we're making a record. <laughs> so I owe that one to my my daughter. She's smarter than me. <laughs> it would it would have been awkward if she would have been wrong on that one, and he was just being nice. He's like, "What? No, I don't." Uh, oh, okay. I guess we'll make some time. <laughs> a lucky break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into some some old stories here. I wanna I wanna right. jump uh, back all the way. Actually, I wanna go. You know, I'm a huge fan of the Ken Burns documentaries, and I'm a huge fan mm -hmm. of the Ken Burns country music documentary, which of course you were a part of there. Mm -hmm. And he actually uses one of your stories of your past in the you know in the documentary as like a segue from old country to the 70s country and what, what did i say do you remember well the 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 uh, story is you going to see hank williams when you were oh, two with my with father yeah right yeah with my father yeah and obviously you were two you don't really remember anything i i've heard you talk about that before and and how you remember sort of just a sensation of being on your dad's shoulders i remember um, this the smell of his hair tonic mm -hmm. i do yeah. and i remember i clearly remember two things a eddy of cool air touching my cheek and mm -hmm. the smell of his hair tonic wild root cream oil probably and uh but the rest of that memory is his Mm -hmm. Because all that my father was a Hank Williams fan and a and a local hillbilly singer, yeah. and he and he constantly reminded me. And I, I took you to see the hillbilly Shakespeare. And here's an interesting story about that. Maybe nobody. I don't know if I've ever told this part of the story uh, uh, publicly. But when I was writing my book, Chinaberry Sidewalks, a memoir. I was writing about that Hank Williams, mm -hmm. uh, my father taking me to see Hank Williams. So I was stuck. And so I drove down to Montgomery where the Hank Williams Museum is. I just mm -hmm. told my wife, I'm going to Montgomery. I'll be back. I don't know what I'm doing. So I drove down there. Now, flashback to when I'm five years old, uh, the Shamrock Hilton Hotel in Houston had a big fountain, the Meekum Fountain. Fountains is called in this giant hotel there. And we would drive by it in my father's Studebaker and I look at it and I go, my God, those those the fountains are all lit up. And I said, it's I'll never be able to stay in a place like that because we were East Houston poor. Mm -hmm. So when I get down to Montgomery, nobody's in the Hank Williams Museum but but a lady at the desk and she recognized me and she said, What? are you doing here? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm writing about my father taking me to see Hank Williams when I was two years and four months old. And she said, come with me. So she took me back into the vault, way back into the back. And then there was the accounting ledger. She goes back to December 14, 1952. And she opens it up and she says, look at here. Hank stayed at the Shamrock Hilton Hotel in the presidential suite that night. Guess how much it cost? Yeah, I'm $20. Close. Good guess. It was 
to stay <laughs> in the presidential suite at the Shamrock Hilton Hotel, where I would never yeah. be able to stay. And when that happened, I just went, oh, man. So I drove, I started heading back home, and I just pulled off the side of, of the Interstate 24 and just pulled over in my car with my notebook, and I just started writing. And I got, and I, in longhand, I got a lot of that chapter just knowing that it only cost $28 to stay in the presidential suite and you were Hank Williams and you were going to die two weeks later, opened up the pathway to where I could write that chapter mm -hmm. or, or write those seven or eight pages that are in that chapter. Is that yeah. a, that's a good story in it. Oh yeah. Have oh, I told yeah. it before? <laughs> uh, I, I actually, honestly, I think you might have. At, uh, in, in one of the interviews that I, I have seen with you, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I do remember the hotel. I do remember you talking about the It might be just from the, the memoir itself. Um, with that, what, what does that, what does that memory mean? Like you said, it, it's your dad's, your dad's memory. What, what, what does that memory mean to you? Because like, it, it's like I said, they use it in the documentary. Ken Burns uses it as this documentary as far as like basically showing you being one of the new songwriters in that 70s uh, era of, of country music, basically connecting to that past. When you look back on it now, as far as like going to that concert, what does it mean? What it means to me is what I wrote in the book in which my father dreamed of having the career I've had and it was not meant to be he was a he was a, uh, a dirt farmer sharecrop farmer kid and but what he was saying to me when he took me on his shoulders and what he was saying to me when reinforcing the memory for me. And it's what I wrote in the book. It just came to me when I was sitting on the highway. It says, look at me up there. That's who I really am. Mm. And that's what, that was the gift that he gave me with that. It's like, he knew it wasn't, it wasn't gonna be, but he was letting me know in his own way is that that was the dream he had for himself. And so maybe I just, took it from there and because I've had a career I'm I haven't been Hank Williams by any stretch of the imagination but I've kept a roof over my head since I was 22 years old just writing songs and making music so yeah. you'd have to call that a success that's a yes definitely <laughs> <laughs> well in in several interviews you you've had I've heard you talk about your songwriting career and how it essentially started uh, around the Beatles and Bob Dylan, you know, that was, that's when you got interested from changing from just being a musician, you played with your dad in his bands, you got interested in the songwriting aspect with, with the Beatles and Dylan, and you got a master's class in songwriting with Guy Clark, Towns Van Sant later, but initially, what would you say from the Beatles and, and Dylan, did you learn initially as far as songwriting when you first started getting into it? I would say it started before then. It started mm. with my dad, mm. who would sit on the side of the bed with his eyes closed, singing, no one will never know the truth but me, or put my little shoes away. 
and I'd be playing on the floor and I'd hear those songs and they they crept into my psyche. Mm -hmm. And then then it was the late 50s, it was Chuck Berry and Elvis, because I was never, a, I love Elvis 1956, but he lost me pretty quickly. And, and uh, but Chuck Berry had me and, and a lot of late 50s rock and roll had me. And, mm -hmm. and of course, country music was in my DNA. But, you know, about the time that I, uh, 13 years old, when uh, puberty strikes and the girls are, you know, vivid mm -hmm. and the Beatles come across and you hear those, you watch them on TV and the girls are screaming, you know, I want that. And then Dylan comes along and you go, how do you do that? But I'll tell you, also in 1964, Willie Nelson had The Sun is Filled with Ice and Gives No Warmth at All. Mm -hmm. One of the most ironic pieces of songwriting is as, as ironic, actually, as I Walk the Line, Johnny Cash. Um, and I heard that in 64. It was played on pop radio around Houston in 1964. And that was another one where I said, whoa, how do you do that? Um, so a lot of my influence was uh, songwriting beginnings were, how do you do that? And then I got to Nashville and I happened to get, just stumbled into a songwriting salon yeah, where I could see how you do it up close and personal with, with Guy and Towns and some other folks that were around. Mickey yeah. Newberry. Mickey Newberry was profoundly influenced me because... Billy Joe and Guy and Towns had the, those kind of baritone voices that carried poetry really well. Mm -hmm. um, Christopherson, it, it, that baritone thing that, that had gravitas. I started listening to Mickey Newberry and he's singing Cortelia Clark or uh, San Francisco Mabel Joy in a tenor. I'm a natural tenor. Mm -hmm. And Mickey, it's like an operatic tenor but he was writing beautiful poetic pieces. And that's when I, 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 when I really, I said, oh God, I can't get to where Towns is with that, that watery bottom in and his voice. And now the Beatles, you get the girls and it's, it's inspirational and it's fun and, it's, and it's, it's provocative and profound in its own way. But Newberry had that beautiful, you know, Roy Orbisonic tenor he said, I heard his daddy was an honest man, just a red dirt Georgia farmer, like San Francisco Mabel Joy. When I first heard that, I was, oh man, okay, all right, hold everything. I got to ponder, how do you do this? <laughs> and eventually through osmosis or whatever, and, and also because of my DNA and because of my father and in and, and her own way, my mother, I was born to be a songwriter. and. Fate would just put me in places where it was so obvious. It was so in my face that I started to understand that I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned you, you moved to Nashville for, uh, I actually saw, you know, you moved to Nashville cause you thought you had a, a record deal. You basically yeah. were duped, uh, <laughs> thought you had this capital records, uh, record deal. That Columbia, Columbia, Columbia. 
Columbia, which you got to go back which, to. Which I eventually got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like, I, I was wondering, because I feel like if I were in that scenario and I got tricked into this this situation and I'm in Nashville, I would have just gone right back to Texas. What what kept you in Nashville? I think the very thing that, that got me there in such a suspicious way is like whatever, you know, the universe, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the puppet strings, they got mm -hmm. me there. Mm -hmm. And my partner at the time, Donovan, who has traveled with me now forever, he he lit out. We were a singing duo. He lit out. He went. He had a he had a girlfriend, and mm -hmm. they headed for Arizona or somewhere. But I stuck around, mm -hmm. and um, got taken in. And and pretty soon after the boom was lowered, about this is all a sham. I met Guy Clark. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I met Skinny Dennis Sanchez of of Guy Clark's uh, L.A. Freeway. Fame, and mm -hmm. he and his partner were lazy, and they knew I had a job washing dishes. So they invited me to take the other bed in the house because I could pay the rent, probably twenty five dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met Guy, and uh, and Susanna, and actually Susanna and I uh, hit it off before Guy and I did. It took Guy a minute to to understand where I was coming from. The way Guy, Guy took me in because I knew all of those old songs that my dad had played. Mm. And I could I could keep him interested or sort of entertained with whatever I had by by singing You Gotta Have a License or Put My Little Shoes Away, these these old Appalachian dead baby songs that I learned from my dad. That fascinated Guy. I was about to say, uh, Guy seems like a guy that would be hard to entertain. To just he doesn't seem like every interview that i've seen with him he just seems like it's like a no nonsense it, it's a lot like you actually mentioned i've heard you talk about how when you were learning to write songs and you'd bring it up to him he'd say hey bring it to me and then you would have to recite it to him just without the music you would I'd just have, have to, i'd have to look him in the eye yeah 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 those yeah those piercing scorpio eyes you know and it, it's like look me in the eye and tell me those words don't play your guitar and of course i learned is because when you want to look away yeah you know that you're trying to slide one by mm -hmm. and it and it does not serve the narrative that was a gift uh which i could never repay and i, I have song i have these songwriting class camps where songwriters come forever everywhere once in a while i'll have them sit in front of look me in the eye and and uh read me their lyrics and they'll yeah. look me right in the eye and read me their lyrics in there and i think the reason i might have been a long-term professional songwriter is because i knew when i was missing the point i'd look away but some young songwriters have not yet figured out that as a friend of mine once said to me, I said, what is the biggest uh, thing that happens with your graduate students where she teaches up at Syracuse? She said, oh, that's easy. Falling in love with what they've written. And I find that, you know, a young songwriter or, or even an old songwriter who will give me a lame lyric and look me in the eye. 
without mm-hmm. looking away. I said, they're never going to understand. You got you to have that intuitive thing of like, oh, I'm trying to slide this one by. Yeah. Not, I mailed this self, in. It's, it's self-editing that makes for good writing. Or, you, have, or being lucky enough to have a real editor. <laughs> I'm guessing you intentionally do that now when you when you write. You sort of, I mean, do you sort of go to even the level of imagining guy still being there in front of you? I mean, in in a way, not obviously, but like thinking about. Subconsciously, I would say probably so, but I've done it so long that I'm able to do that to myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I used to write songs in an afternoon and, and occasionally it still happens, but now I'll work on them for a good long while yeah and, and move in and it's like oh i thought that was really good but on further consideration mm, it's short of the mark do, do you think you uh, i mean because i've heard you talk about like uh shame on the moon uh, and how that irritated you for years the last verse of the song do you Did think ever... <laughs> you might over edit yourself like in the fact sure. of like you just sure. Yeah. look too much at those songs yeah yeah of course no. of course no. i do probably most of the time now <laughs> i've done it so long and i'm so heavily self-edited that sometimes i go back to where i started you know it, sometimes i'm smart enough to go ah oh, i had it better back there uh, is and, there any point that you just say like okay this is retired okay i can't i'm not touching that anymore no <laughs> <laughs> I play, you know, there's some songs I played for years that I still tinker around with. Mm-hmm. See if it, see if two words makes it better or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, being, you know, 20 something is an interesting creative time in one's life. And if you, you look at, at, at God, Lennon and McCartney in their early 20s, they were explosively creative. If you look yeah. at that period of Dylan in 63, 60, you know, that he was like, it's all right, mom, only bleeding. That's that's otherworldly. And Towns writing uh, No Place to Fall and, and the things that he wrote, Quicksilver Dreams of Maria in, when he was 24, 25. Mm-hmm. I had my own version of that with I ain't living long like this until I gain control again and leave in Louisiana. Some of the songs that are probably my more recognizable songs, they came in my 20s. And it seems like creatively, if you got the gift or the work ethic, generally speaking, the work ethic is not there. It's got to be a gift usually in your 20s to get a good one like that. Um, as we age and, you know, I'm I'm a septuagenarian now, and I'm and I'm still striving as much as I ever did to write a really good song. Mm-hmm. But a lot of water is under the bridge, and those moments that happen in your twenties happened like lightning in a bottle, in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, now it's all earned by well, they say elbow sweat. You know, it's like it's it's labor that earns you inspiration now, or, or earns me inspiration now. Mm-hmm. Occasionally something will pop up, but I got to work to bring it to the level that I believe that it should be. And maybe, maybe it really doesn't need to come up to that level because when I was in my twenties, I didn't care. 
I just mm -hmm. wrote it down, and at the last verse, it, I only discovered after I recorded the song of Shame on the Moon that the last verse was pukey. <laughs> a songwriter who recorded the song and caught me in a public uh, place, and it's Mac Davis, I can say it now, but Mac said, hey, I recorded your Shame on the Moon song. He said, I wish I could have been there to help you with that last verse. <laughs> I hugged him. I said, yes, somebody somebody who understands. Get it. Get it. Well, it, it does remind me, I mean, just the way that you, you defined as far as, you know, the, the 20s versus later in your career. It makes me think of like any, any sort of talent career makes me think of an, an athlete. You know, you think of like uh, Michael Jordan. At the start of his career, he was relying on that explosiveness, the amazing talent that he had. And then the later in the career, it's the skill. It's everything mm -hmm. else that he's learned over those years yeah. that's getting him to those those masterpieces. Yeah, um, true. Well, you, you um, like we talked about, you you, you met uh, Guy Clark and, and Van Sant and... Um, you know, you, you talked about how they really made you do that sort of eye-opening, okay, all right, how do you do that? What's that? How How's that go? Van Zant is a, he's a, he's a cult figure, uh, and I hear him all the time being called a songwriter's songwriter. Uh, what made you say... Like explain uh, to to us non songwriters what makes him on that other level as far as being a songwriter songwriter. Towns had a magical knack for creating. Sometimes I thought uh, this image will be too light to really. Um, capture the depth of what he could do, but his songs are almost like cloud formations mm -hmm. um, that just uh, just assemble themselves in in the sky in front of you. And it's when I would hear when Towns would play a new song, or I would hear songs that he'd already recorded, or whatever it was. It was heavenly organic the way he the way he did it and it was dark too so it, you, you can't it can't be frilly to describe what towns did but he had a particular gift or as someone once said oh it's like that song just grew up out of the ground and there was no writing involved in it most of most of town songs would be. I mean, even some of them that were his lesser works were. Uh, it just. It is. You can't find how it was done. Mm. Cannot figure out how it was done. You can't figure out how it's all right, Mom. Only bleeding is done, really. But I think, as as Steve Earle famously said, Towns is the better of the two. And I think if that were to be true, it's just that Towns, you could not put your finger on how he did it. I could put my finger on how Dylan did some of that stuff. Uh, 
and try to understand in my own way how to get there. Hey, look, till I gain control again is the result of knowing Steve, I mean, knowing Towns, and, and also playing Help Me Make It Through the Night in a Holiday Inn about a thousand times when I was playing in Holiday Inns in East Texas. Mm-hmm. It's like, help me make it through the night until I gain control again is like, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that's my interpretation of help me make it through the night. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I got a song that, that could be interpreted from Punch on Lefty or, or uh, uh, No Place to Fall, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, see, when you start trying to describe towns in the way that you're asking me, it's a tall order. It's it's an it's a gift beyond gifts. And um, you know there are writers that um, who would accomplish the same thing in different ways. Poets, um, mm-hmm. take your pick. But I was lucky enough to be like face to face with Towns a lot. And, and strangely, here's what I can tell you about Towns. In the early 70s, there was a little long sloping sidewalk, and we used to put beer cans down, and we had a skateboard. And we used, in in 72 and 73, Towns and I would do slalom skateboarding down, and Towns was the best skateboarder I've ever seen. Had he <laughs> had he been born later, he would have been one of those guys that that you see doing yeah. amazing things. He had it. His coordination was was just fluid he was watery on a skateboard how's that man tony hawk the pre-tony hawk right pre, there pre-tony hawk you're right man i think he would yeah. i think he would have been in that and and he wasn't i just had a skateboard i don't even know how i got it i couldn't make it through past two beer cans before i was stumbling but he's just gliding down Man of many talents. Well, well, not too long after you actually professionally started songwriting, uh, Emmy Lou decided to record your song "Bluebird Wine," and you guys met in person not too long after that as well. And you've been you've been partners in music really ever since. Yeah. Um, it, it's another thing that uh, I'm it's probably too hard to describe. But it's one of those things that stuck with me with that documentary, uh, the Ken Burns documentary about country music. In there, there was a quote from Johnny Cash, and Johnny Cash says, every so often, country has to get back to Emmy Lou Harris. And yeah. what, what, does that, what does that mean? What is that saying as far as what Emmy Lou Harris is as far as a songwriter and uh, and a musician? Well, I know uh, <laughs> I've never uh, spilled these beans publicly, but I know that John had a massive crush on Emmy Lou. <laughs> anyway, I mean, he loved June, but mm. he knew he knew how close Emmy and I and he used to like. Do you think she would like me? <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of thing. So that may be part of it, but but he may have been talking about the purest aspect of what, what Emmy 
brings. Mm -hmm. I mean, her interpretation. I met Emmy not too long after Graham died, and I never knew Graham. But as it would happen, I just happened, sort of, as she's explained it to me, a, a lot of her relationship with Graham was uh, about songs. And Graham was teaching her about some old country songs. And, and, uh, and she was just absorbing it. And, and part of her grief, I think, after Graham died was that she didn't have that conversation. And I stumbled into her life and I, we started singing Lubin Brothers songs together and, and we started having a conversation about songs. And mm -hmm. I became her close friend and ally because we just had an ongoing talk about songs. And mm -hmm. I'm repeating myself, but uh, and which still exists to this day. It's we still I mean, we have other a lot of we have a li lifetime of shared things, but in the end, it's it's that fascination. How, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. don't know that I've answered your question about John, other than revealing he had a mad crush on Emma. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, that's that's one of those things that I I think you did in a way in the fact that. It's obvious she is fascinated with the songwriting and country music. And that's always been one of her sort of driving forces of her creation of music is trying to get to that ultimate country songwriting. The the, the, the real purity of it. The purity yes. of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 The purity Absolutely. of the, the purity of the tradition, the narrative. Mm-hmm. And the heartbreak is, it was Towns, I think, that said there's two, there's the blues and there's zippity doo -dah. And And it's sort of applicable because I mean, sometimes when we perform together, just the two of us sitting on a stool now and occasionally just trade songs and stuff. And she said, get ready because we're going to sing a lot of sad songs. And and I, the reason I was able to stay in the songwriting salon before I developed with Towns and Guy and, and and so many other people that were around at the time was because I knew some really sad songs. <laughs> so you get more gravitas out of a really sad song than you do zippity doo -dah. Yeah, yeah. Are you saying you, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine? Okay, that's cool. But they'll never ever take her love for me is another thing. It's yeah. it's 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 humanness. Mm -hmm. That's Emmy. And I think that may be what John was talking about. Um to get to that real if you can get to heartbreak and do it with with some style and grace then you've done your job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I've actually, I've, I, so I've, I've had several folks on the show before uh, that have been around John, speaking of Johnny Cash. And, uh, you know, we had, we have David Ferguson on the show that recorded, uh, yeah. that was 
here for a lot of his stuff and we had marty stewart on the show and he talked about uh meeting johnny cash and i was wondering do you have uh, a memory of that first time we met johnny cash yeah at the beverly hills hotel uh with his daughter who i was dating at the time and she said i want you to come meet my dad in, in june so they had a bungalow one of those bungalows in the back of the beverly hills hotel and uh the you know the big pink hotel on sunset boulevard and it's like yeah here i am and it was what 76 78 yeah went and had d candlelight dinner in their bungalow it was pretty heady stuff that's a that that's a not nearly as fun of a start interaction with Johnny Cash as uh, Marty and uh, and and Dave had as far as uh, meeting him for the first time. That's a uh, a lot more intense uh, with <laughs> being a uh, first date. <laughs> it was, but there was something about it that was really sweet that I told June when. My in the late '30s, the you know, Carter family would record in San Antonio and and to to broadcast from Border Radio on XERA. Mm -hmm. It's it was a Carter family live on XERA, and John used to say, "Yeah, it was the you know the signal was so clear we could pick it up on a barbed wire fence in Arkansas." But I, in the 50s, mid-50s with my grandmother, we would listen to rebroadcast of uh, the Carter family shows on XEG coming from down on the border, different radio. And so June was 11 back there when in the late 30s. Mm -hmm. So I had a crush on June from 1955. When I thought she was still a kid or close to my age. So I said, you know, I said, I told June, I said, I've been in love with you since 1955 when you were 11 years old. And she said, why, that's the best compliment I've ever been paid. So that broke that broke the ice on it and everything just rolled really good from there. And, and, they, and they introduced me to expensive French wine. So that was, <laughs> I'd never... I'd never had anything but Boone Farm apple wine up until then. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. That's a. That's an expensive thing <laughs> you know, to be introduced to there. I, I know it was rarefied air, but, <laughs> but I adapted. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to move forward there uh, with another sort of era of your career. Uh, you you had a real successful solo era there uh in in the late 80s early 90s um diamonds and dirt was probably the most successful album uh you had five number one singles on the album but i've heard you say that's not your best album several times as far as like in your yeah. where where and why why does it rank lower and, songs are good mm -hmm. the songs are good and the production mm -hmm. was good the uh, sound of it was good, but I wasn't uh, I wasn't fully there yet as a as a performer. Mm. Um, I've said you probably if it sounds like you you've checked me out pretty closely, as I've said, and it remains true. And some people argue with me, but I know this for a fact. 
I was about, it was about just before the Houston kid that I finally found my voice. And, and when you say voice, it's narrative, it's, but it's also as a singer. Yeah. I just was, why people have, People say, why, why are you so down on, your, on the sound of your voice, you know, in 1987 when you made Diamonds and Dirt? And I said, because I'd heard Ray Charles. And I'd heard Don Everly. Duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'd heard Roy Orbison. It's like, you know, I, I don't have to be perfect, but I got to be there. And mm-hmm. I finally discovered, well, with the help of a, recording engineer who removed reverb from the process of recording and we said what and he said trust (laughs) me on this and and suddenly there was my voice and i heard it Mm -hmm. and as i heard it i said oh i can work with this and then i started really so from 2000 from houston kid on I felt like there was a real recording artist at work. Before that, there was a there was a pretty pretty uh, impressive songwriter at work, mm-hmm. but I didn't but I didn't think the singer had arrived until about 2000. And I, I'm sticking with that, and it's and it's not. I don't want to slag off the work I did getting there. Yeah, but but look, as an artist or anyone as a as a neurosurgeon mm-hmm. it to develop your skills to the point where your confidence is becomes unconscious mm-hmm. where you don't have to prop up yourself with this conscious creation of of I mean it's part of the insecurity of being a performer some people are overbearing it's because the insecurity is not backed up by an inner confidence Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I didn't acquire my inner confidence until I was fifty years old. Yeah. And I'm glad because it's it's given me the last twenty two years of my recording career have been my. I, I've loved my work because sure. I've been I've been and it's not all. You know, there's peaks and valleys in the work. In the, what twelve records, whatever I've made, I don't know what it is. Some of them are better than others. But I was working from a more confident interior, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I'm talking about, really. Yeah. When I when I say, oh yeah, I just wasn't there yet. Yeah, yeah. More definitely more on the the performance side too, not on the songwriting side of those. Yeah, those yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I I stand by songs I wrote in 1972 to this day. Oh yeah, stand by You know, you know. good song, good songs. I love Bluebird one. Yes, good, good song. I played it the other night in Key West, and I thought, wow, Wow. that's a good song. That's a good place to play it right there. (laughs) Yeah. Goes with the scenery. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, now, uh, to circle back around, latest release, we talked about it at the beginning, uh, Chicago Sessions there recorded with Jeff Tweedy. Uh, You, you know, I, I heard you talk about how you were excited about playing in Chicago, uh, because of all of the history of Chicago, and then of course of, of getting to to record with Jeff, uh, how 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 did once you actually recorded there, how did it compare to all the places that you've recorded when you recorded in his his loft space? 
Well, that's a unique place. Mm-hmm. And Tom Schick, his recording engineer at The Loft, is a unique recording engineer. I love working with him. As, as, I mean, he's a perfect sidekick for Jeff. And plus, it's just really, really great instruments, great gear, great mm-hmm. vibe. And and the romance of romance of of Chuck Berry mm-hmm. <laughs> recording here and Helen Wolf. Uh, so that romance because you could come to Nashville when I first got to Nashville, it was a romance of Hank Williams and the romance of of Chris Christopherson. When I mm-hmm. got to L.A., it was a romance of uh, the Flying Burritos and uh, and the Burrs and Take Your Pick, Beach Boys. Uh, New York City. There was the, the when I first recorded there. It was the romance of uh, Bob Dylan at Columbia Studios. And when I finally got to work at Abbey Road, it was a romance of whoa, Studio B. This is where the Beatles made all this music. Mm-hmm. In Austin, it's it's the romance of Willie. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I I'm in I'm in it for the romance. You know, it's it it's uh, perks you up. Nice, nice. Well, uh, you got a lot of shows coming this uh, this month, coming through uh, our town here in Jacksonville. Very excited about the show. And I noticed way down the line at the end of the year, you got a show uh, coming with uh, John Paul White, who we had on the show, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Paul White, I'll tell you, you were talking earlier about the sad songs being uh, more emotional. I don't think that guy can ever play a happy song. I don't think I've ever heard him play a happy song. You might have to force him. Try to get him on one of those happy songs. Oh, I'm sure. I'm thinking, surely (laughs) we wrote a song together and it is sad. Oh, uh, but God, uh, what you got that voice that John John Paul's like like Roy Orbison. It's like you can't zippity doodah with that voice. <laughs> it's like you got you got to break hearts with that voice. It's so beautiful, yeah. and and he's so compelling. Yeah, he's a sweet boy. That one he may he may sing sad songs, but he's a sweetheart. Oh, he's he's fantastic. He's fantastic beyond the show. Very nice, but. Uh... Speaking of, Rodney, we are up against a break, but I want to thank you for bearing with us through going down memory lane and talking about the things as well. My pleasure, man. It's, uh, we'll do it again some other time. We'll make up yeah. some new stories. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Listeners, okay. make sure you check out Rodney when he comes through Jacksonville on February 28th. Make sure you stream all of his music right now. We're going to take a listen to everything at once right here on the Doc G Show. And we are back here on the Doc G Show. You just heard Rodney Crowell. Fantastic, Mike. Fantastic. Just a legend. A legend. I always get excited. I mean, we've had a lot of legends on the show, but Mm -hmm. it's one of those things. And I'm like, man, could the the 15-year-old believe that I've talked to all of these legends? No, he would not believe that. You know, he would be amazed. Yeah, but that's a fact. Uh, I think I made I think I made Rodney a, a little self conscious there at the beginning of that interview. When I, I like I so before the interview, 
I was watching all, you know, I was doing my research, mm-hmm. watching all these old interviews of him. And in those interviews, he was covering the same, same questions. Every single time they'd ask him the same questions. And I was just like, yeah, man, he's been doing this for like 45 years of answering all of these same questions. I feel bad for him. So mm-hmm. when I came into the interview, you know, I wanted to like apologize. Like, hey, man, if we rehash anything that you've already talked about, I'm very sorry. And I think he took that as, oh, crap, I tell the same thing every single time. I'm going to have to try to tell new things because he's bored. And it wasn't because I was bored. It was just the fact that, you know, I felt bad for him, you know? Yeah. I, uh, like, I feel like after you tell the same story 150 times, you're like, Jesus Christ, again? I got to tell this one one more time, you know? Yeah. But then, but then after almost everything he said, he'd be like, that was something new, right? You never heard that one before, right? (laughs) Just trying to get, huh? Is that new? Anybody? No? And I didn't want to tell him, Mike. I sort of said, but that uh, that, um, uh, Hank Williams story that he had, uh, you know, he had told that one before. And he's like, that's new, right? And I was like, yeah, sure. Maybe I've heard it once or (laughs) twice, I think. Maybe like parts of it. I don't know. But like. You got to give it up to him, man. Always nice going on those interviews, always giving his best in interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I would be, I, I feel like if I were him at that point in my career, I'd sort of be the Greg Popovich of musical interview guests where everything would be a sarcastic mm-hmm. comment. And they'd be like, well, so you started when? I'd be like, oh, why didn't you look it up? You didn't look it up? Well, you don't seem to be good at your job. Anyways, <laughs> like, you know, but he's a super nice guy and super talented and uh can't believe we had him on the show. Shout out to yeah. Rodney. Yeah. Thanks thank for coming so on the show. Man. Yeah. We appreciate it. Mike. We do. We need to move on to the fastest growing segment in the world. Mike's the top three. Mike, I didn't know what to do on this one. You know? Yeah. There's a lot of mysteries out there. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, if you weren't aware, this week's topic was the top three mysteries. Top three historical mysteries, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of them, Mike. There's a lot of them. I could have yeah, done like 50 are. honorable mentions, but I, I just did the top three. Okay. I just did top three. Do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, I guess I do because I have four here, and I guess uh, this would be um, who killed JFK. Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean, you know, I'm I'm gonna go. I'm I was about to say I'm gonna go with the authorities on that one. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the authority. Main reason I go with the authorities on that one, Mike, is it's it's one of those classic conspiracies of where we just don't want to believe that something so random happened to someone that seems so powerful, but. Mm. You, you can't control randomness, man. You can't yeah. control uh, dumb in a window with a sniper gun, you know, mm-hmm. and just, uh, yeah. But it is a mystery. And yeah. I don't know. Mike, my number three goes to a place uh, that you have been. Death Valley. Death Valley. Death Valley. The Sailing Stones. Hmm. There are Sailing Stones in Racetrack Playa of Death Valley. These stones get up to like 700 pounds. And apparently they just slide through the desert 
and there's no detectable traces of how they move. Wait, what? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't what, what about like Yeah, I don't know. No, I have no idea. <laughs> now, I, I don't know. Now, um scientists think they have solved it. They think they solved it back in 2014. Uh, they think it happens when it actually gets cold in Death Valley and water gets under the, the stone, it freezes, and then the, the, the little oh. freeze moves. It's basically they slide because of wind, yeah. and then they, they slide across the actual sand making the tracks. Mm. But I don't know. That seems tough. That seems... I mean, it's it, just it's, so gradual. It just happens. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely wild, though, because you got these big these big bones in the middle of this sand and you can just see their little track. And it's mm -hmm. obvious that nothing external has moved them. There's no like person pushing behind them. It's just this crazy little track. It's wild. Hmm. It's wild. Check Mike, you're out. number three. OK, so the doxy mine are wild. OK. Mine are pretty wild. Okay. Um, here we go. So we'll start with my most, maybe maybe my most wild one. It's just more of a question, but like, did the dinosaurs use tools? And mm. how far, if they did use tools, did how much technology did they have? If there was mm. any, I don't know. I I, I wonder. It's like you know, hundreds of millions of years that mm. they were on Earth. And like, mm -hmm. you know, only a small percentage of that time period we have. We got down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, it doesn't take too long. I mean, as far as our history, there's a lot of guesswork. I mean, you know, and when you get hundreds of millions of years, there's definitely a lot of guesswork. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's all the archaeologists are doing is a bunch of guesswork based mm -hmm. off of science of what we have now and other things. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe maybe they were back there. Uh, maybe they had uh, dinosaur <laughs> computers. Who knows? You know, like the uh, dinosaurs show, like the uh, like the puppet. Oh uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I think we've talked about it on the show, but I always wonder if it like that's like almost like a realistic. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> what they were doing. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> wearing uh, shirts. Mike, my, my number two, the uh, Tunguska uh, Tunguska explosion. So uh, it happened in 1908. Massive, massive, massive explosion in Siberia, in Russia, in 1908. The blast is estimated to equal 2,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. Mm. <laughs> and this, this is a crazy thing. Like, they think it was, you know, they think it was a, a meteor, right? That's that's the sort of the best uh guess of what caused it but like my favorite thing is they could see this thing 500 miles away it was measured on seismographs literally all the way around the world and in 1908 it wasn't investigated truly by any investigators until 1927 what hmm. That's actually better than I thought. I thought you were about to say like 1980 or something. But, but still, 19 years, somebody's yeah. like, yeah. think we should get over there? I don't want to go over there. It was scary. Yeah. I'm not doing that. <laughs> you see how big that explosion was? I'm not going anywhere close to that. Like, tw almost 20 years. 
It's crazy. And they're still yeah. not they're still not sure, but it's no. uh it's a uh, nutter butters, man. Just this massive, massive explosion. What? I mean, what was uh, the city? Or where, uh, where was it? Tungusa, Tunguska. So T U N G U S K A. Tunguska. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild. Wild. Yeah. Mike, you're number Super two. Random. Um, number two. What did the Native Americans know that we don't know? What did, what did, what kind of tricks, what kind of hacks did they have that that we don't know because like we just we're missing out on a lot of TikTok yeah. videos they could be making. We're missing out oh, on God. so many dances. <laughs> they got they got some cool things, man. I thought about putting that in mine uh before the Mayans, before the Aztecs. There yeah. were the 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 I think they're called the old decks. I need to go back and look <laughs> at their name. I'm not sure what their name was. But uh, they had these giant headstones. They mm -hmm. carved out these giant, and it's another one. You know, it's it's like Stonehenge. It's like these others. You know, like the rock only could come like from this place three hundred miles away from where they were actually at. And you're like, how? What? What did they do? And I mean, in my guess, they probably you know forced some like sort of slave labor to move it across that mm. uh, that area like you're gonna carry that 300 miles what us yeah just push it keep pushing it we're gonna get it all the way there but still yeah wild man have you heard the, the uh have you heard the theory about like stonehenge it used to be like a forest like there used to be a forest there and they used trees and logs and they, they basically like rolled it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a know. good idea Mike, your number, your number two, or one, my number, yeah, two, yeah, yeah. My number two. Well, my number one, I think, would be. My oh number wait, one. wait! Yeah. Oh, I forgot. My, I, my I passed one. it off on you, even though that wasn't one that I was just. I got to do <laughs> yeah. my one first. Doctor, what's your number one? My number one goes exactly what we're saying. Who built Stonehenge? That's Who my number Stonehenge. one. Yeah, it's a very. I mean, nobody knows. Came about like six thousand years ago. Uh, it took like the like the different areas of Stonehenge are fifteen hundred years apart, so it's fifteen hundred years of building this thing up. These are massive stones. Mm -hmm. It's wild, and yeah. it's just it's just out there. And like, what were they like? Why were they just like stacking dominoes on top of each other? Like that's a rock. Look at that. It's on top of the other one. That's mm -hmm. wild. That should nice. stop the rain, right? Like, we got it there. Should... I think your wife's pregnant now, thanks to that. High fives. Like, yeah. We're it's, gonna be good for eternity. It's wild, man. I I so many questions. So yeah, many questions. For sure, what, for sure. What's your number one? Well, Doc G, I think I've brought this up on the show too, or or maybe I've just said it so many times in my life, but what other what information did we lose to library? fires mm. uh library of alexandria the house mm. of wisdom in baghdad mm. huge fires uh just so much knowledge was lost i mean and definitely, who knows who knows what was in there definitely lost some really cool uh history at least yeah. i mean even if it wasn't like knowledge of like yeah, oh we lost true. that like at least there's probably a whole bunch of things that we could like mysteries like these things that we like oh that's what happened yeah it's right true. here there it is, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, historical records. 
That's, uh, mm, man, there's a lot of them out there, though. Like I said, I could have chose, I don't yeah. know how many different things. There were <laughs> there were a whole bunch of different crazy, uh, I mean, like, you know, just, oh, yeah, a bunch, bunch of things. I mean, and then you get into, like, you know, the wild, like, Bermuda Triangle things, too, that you're just mm -hmm. like, what's, what, why? Yeah. What what's, what's up with this triangle? Is it, mm -hmm. why is it a spooky triangle? What's going on? You know, like, yeah, it's a, I think it's all well, superstition, but no, a little some bit, people have some, a little bit. Magnets. Yeah. It's yeah, magnetism. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Mike, what is our topic for next week? Um, how about top three jump scare moments in movies? Mm. I don't like that, Mike. I no. don't have I don't like that for the fact that I don't like to be jump scared. And yeah. I also don't watch a lot of those movies. So they're all repressed memories. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I um, want to jump in laughter, which, by the way, plug Mike, I uh, watched the new Ted uh, series on Peacock. Don't know if you knew that was out, but, you know, no. a Ted from uh, Seth MacFarlane from, you know, Family Guy who made the movie mm -hmm. Ted. Yep. They've got a series now of Ted when he was in high school. When, uh, you know, when they were growing up and I watched the first three episodes, I endorse it. Okay. There were definitely a couple of parts of it that I laughed pretty loud by myself out loud. And I was like, <laughs> that, that's, that's that. Yeah. I was like, that is solid. That is solid writing right there. But anyways, Mike, uh, would, would, do we have another, do we have another option? Hmm. top three viral videos okay i don't watch too many viral videos but i'm sure i can go back and and just find some that were you know top three i, I yeah. can get behind that yeah yeah you want to try the yeah. viral videos okay. yeah let's do okay. that we'll do viral cool. videos top three viral videos i like it i'm writing it down okay put it in the old vault there we go viral videos locked in all right Mike, we have got uh, two birthday suit wearers. Uh, you're not going to get the um, the last one. Okay. But, uh, you know, let's go ahead and try to get this first one. I think you can get it. Cool. Um, born in College Station, Texas, our birthday suit wearer is sometimes known as the Bald Mamba. He won a NBA championship with the NBA Lakers in 2020, and he has been with the Chicago Bulls ever since 2021. White dude that wears a headband a lot, Mike. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Alex yeah, Caruso. Yeah. Boom! Nice got it. Oh, no. I'm so happy I got that one for some reason. Nicely done, Mike. Yeah. February 28th, 1994. Oh, uh, wow. He was uh he averaged 18 points, 9 rebounds in high school, ended up going to Texas A&M for college, and during his 4 years there he averaged 8 points and 8 assists. He went undrafted into uh the uh nba or he went undrafted in 2016 draft and ended up signing with oklahoma city thunder they dropped him down to the old g league and then uh he ended up playing with the summer league 
uh, Los Angeles Lakers, and they gave him a two-year contract in 2019. He won a championship, and then they traded him uh, to the Bulls, and he signed a four-year contract. But last year, Mike, he was selected for the All-NBA defensive team. So there you go. Nice. Alex Caruso. Nice. Happy birthday, Alex. Turning Happy uh, B-Day. Yeah, you know, turn, turning the old uh, uh, 20, or 30, sorry. Turning 30. the old 30. Yeah, wow. crazy, crazy. Mike, this is the last one I don't think you'll get, uh, but uh, we'll give it a shot. Uh, this man has won a Nobel Prize and a Nobel Peace Prize. He's one of only two people that have won uh, individual Nobel Prizes, two different Nobel Prizes. Uh, he is one of the founders of the field quantum chemistry and molecular biology. He developed the method of X-ray crystallography, a molecular model building that led to the understanding of DNA. Later in life, later in life, he became obsessed with mega dosing of vitamins, particularly vitamin C. He wrote two books titled Vitamin C and the Common Cold, and then later Vitamin C, the Common Cold, and the Flu. Name that birthday suit wearer. Man, I I, I feel like I I I want I, I don't want to sit around and yeah, I want to I don't know this guy's name, but I feel like when you say it, I'm gonna be like, oh yeah, that guy. But I will honestly tell you if I have no idea. I'll, I'll just about. I'll just give you I'll give you his initials just in case. Okay. LP. LP. Yeah, I'm not sure. Linus Pauling, Mike. Linus no Pauling. <laughs> no way. No way. No way. No. Mike, uh, I am very familiar with Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling, uh, very interesting that that second half as far as his obsession with vitamins. It, it really came out of nowhere. And for a guy that was so based in science, it didn't really have the same backing that all of his research in in molecular biology and quantum quantum chemistry had and all of a sudden he's just like hey you know what you take a whole bunch of vitamins you'll be good you'll be healthy and they're like no no you won't doesn't show it and like he never had any research showing it but that's really one of the main reasons why vitamin c became so popular not hmm. because it actually helps you defend a cold uh mainly because he wrote that book in fact the uh cells over four years quadrupled of vitamin c after he wrote that wow. book yeah they call it the linus pauling effect mike mm. which i mean makes sense i mean you know if you think about somebody going into their doctor and being like hey i'm sick uh should i take vitamin c and the doctor's like what why and they're like linus pauling told me to he has two Nobel Prizes, you turd. Do you have any? And they're like, no. And he's like, yeah, I thought so. Give me my vitamin C. So anyways, Mike, Linus Pauling. There you go. Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling. You were two for three, Mike. Keeping, keeping the pace. I like it. I like it, Mike. Well done. We've Thank got, we've, we've got 10 months to go though. Get, mm -hmm. get ready. We do. Mike, we have fantastic shows coming up. My goodness, the guests that we have on the show, woo, you don't even know. 
Cedric Burnside, just a fantastic blues artist, Grammy winning blues artist coming on the show. Uh, we have Lawrence Roquel Payton Jr., member of the legendary Hall of Fame four tops on the show. My gosh, can't wait to talk to him. We have the drummer from Fog Hat, the legendary band in the Hall of Fame, Fog Hat coming on the show. And we have the fantastic artist Hannah Wicklin, who is coming on the show. Fun, uh, sh you know, show. Fun fact, Mike, we uh, we interviewed Hannah Wicklin's brother about six years ago on the show. Yeah. Really? Actually, about seven years. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. How's family ties. Uh, he's doing good, man. He is yeah. doing real good. Mike, we need to wrap up the show for now. I have been your host, Doc G. With me, as always, the one, the only, Mikey Maximus the Vernicus Charette. Always a pleasure, Doc G. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Of course. And until next week, zip it up and zip it out. Zip it in your <laughs> Thank you.